suits. And it meant something to him to represent the body of Christ. When he got saved, it was the best day of my life. He really thought he was beyond redemption. I said, sorry, nobody is. And if, if God's only son isn't enough, good enough for you, what is it? It kind of made him go. He wants to be close to you, and he ended up having a really... Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art, when through the woods and forest glades I wander, and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees, when I look down from lofty mountain grandeur, and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze. Oh, sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. And when I think that God is Son not sparing, Send him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou Something. And we need to admit in that state that we are powerless, that in our own power our lives are unmanageable. And until we admit this, we're going to continue living broken, miserable lives. Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, the verse that we discussed last week, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. A few verses later, he asks the piercing question, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? I am doomed in myself. Who's going to rescue it? Thankfully, he continues in the next verse. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Bible teaches that there is hope 
There is freedom from our sin and bondage. There is. But that hope is not in ourselves. We must see ourselves for who we are. Broken, miserable sinners who cannot lift a finger to change our condition. And look from ourselves to the one who can. If you walk into a bookstore, uh, whenever we travel and, and we get to a bigger town, my family and I, we like to stop at bookstores. Half price books is our favorite, but sometimes we find a hole in the wall bookstore like the one in Davenport, uh, and it's a jewel in the middle of a block of who knows what, and I'm not going to tell you the name just in case you go to Davenport because it's my store. But if you walk into a bookstore, you will see a, a, a spot in there. No matter what the bookstore is, there is always a spot that's labeled something like self-help or something like Kat already knew. She was, and there, there's whole bunches of books. It's amazing how many books have been written to be put in this self-help section. People are making millions of dollars off these books. And you can just read the title and you start laughing just because the titles that are there. But... It's all these books about how to change a life. And they'll say things like there's power in positive thinking. And they'll give you ways of working through things and coping with hurts of the past. And the books are nice and they feel good and they sound good. And, and some of the things that are in the book actually do help, but they don't take chains off of people. All these books do is they loosen the chains. They make the chains a little more flexible and they paint them so they look pretty, but the chains are still there. If you go to a counselor, certain ones will do more of the same of what these books say, telling you that you have the power to change your life. But that is a lie. Blatant lie. We don't have the power. There's only one person who has the power to change life. Will you pray with me? Father, we come to you as broken, miserable people, confessing that we need you because we are broken, miserable people. Lord, you know my sins. You know my pride. You know the times I struggle with hypocrisy. You know the times I've lied. You know my desire to please people. You know the lust of my heart and the lust of my eyes, Lord. The things that I continually go back to over and over and over again, and I can't stop. And I need you to help me. We all need you because you have the power. Lord, you are worthy of being sought and we are a needy people that need you so desperately. Forgive us when we take our eyes off of you and turn to all this other stuff that is sparkly and fun and appealing, but provide no hope and no help. Lord, we need you. So today as we study your word and see what it, mean, what it says about who you are as opposed to who we are, I ask that you would open up the eyes of our mind and the eyes of our heart that we would see you clearly and that we would be compelled by you and that we would desire to turn to you as the most beautiful thing in the world, the one who is offered to help. And we stand up and say, I believe, not just with our mouth, but with our actions. Lord, help us in this journey of laying aside the chains of our life and stepping into the freedom that you offer. Thanks, Father. Amen. Thanks be to our powerful God. He has the ability to break the chains in our life. He has the ability to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine because he is so powerful.
He, he powerful. He is all powerful. He can do anything within his character. On Christmas Eve for candlelight services, we discussed who God is. Who is God? Well, we talked about how he is the supreme being. He is the creator and ruler of all that is. He is the self-existent one who is perfect in power and goodness and wisdom. We talked about his nature, that he is, this, he is spirit, he is infinite, he is incomparable and unchanging, that he exists everywhere, knows everything, and has all power and authority. We talked about his character, that he is just, loving, truthful, holy. He shows compassion, grace, mercy. He judges sin, but offers also forgiveness. We talked about his work, that he created the world and sustains the world. He's executing his eternal plan, which involves the redemption of man from the curse of sin and death. We talked about how he judges and he disciplines. We talked about how he is holy. He can't have anything unholy around him. We talked about a whole bunch of stuff on Christmas Eve, about who our God is. And I just rattled off a whole list and became really academic. But sometimes when we rattle off a list and become academic, it really doesn't hit us. So I want to circle back around and talk about three things about God. That God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present. And to do that, I want to talk about this gal by the name of Hagar. This is Hagar and her young son Ishmael, as one artist rendered it. Hagar was a servant of Sarah. Some crazy things happened to Hagar because of Abraham and Sarah's sin. Sarah was barren, couldn't have any kids. And God had promised Abraham and Sarah that they were going to have a kid. In fact, they were going to have descendants as many as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And Abraham and Sarah look at each other and say, well, it's not happening. And Sarah, for some strange, weird, odd reason, looks at Abraham and says, okay, this is the deal. I've never been able to have a kid, and now I'm too old never going to have a kid. So I got this young servant, Hagar. How about you sleep with her and have a kid by her for me? They did weird things like that back then. Even though it is against the will of God, Abraham says, okay, sounds good. Has a kid by Hagar. Hagar becomes pregnant it's obvious that she's pregnant. Sarah gets jealous about this, even though it was Sarah's idea. And she says, Abraham, this servant has a kid. It's making me look bad. And Abraham says, not my problem. This is, of course, all my words. And says, do whatever you want to do. And Sarah says, fine. Kicks Hagar out into the cold in the desert for Hagar to die in the wilderness. God meets Hagar there, promises protection to Hagar, tells Hagar to go back to Sarah and Abraham. And Hagar, in that moment, as she's stuck in the wilderness and she has seen God, she names God. She says, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I've now seen the one who sees me. Hagar is not in the covenant. Hagar's a pagan. The only way she knows God is because Abraham has talked with her about God, but she doesn't have a relationship with him. But she's out in the wilderness, and God meets this pagan lady and promises protection. And God there sits and says, Hagar sits there and says, Wow, 
This unknown God I've not known, I've known about, but never had a relationship. He sees me. He sees me for who I am. He sees me where I am at in this wilderness that I have no power to save myself. I cannot provide for myself. I'm stuck here, a pregnant lady with no food and no water, and God sees me. And he's promised to provide for me. After Hagar's son is born, grows to be about 14, Isaac is born, son of Sarah. And Sarah gets jealous again and says, hey, Abraham, you got a firstborn son by the name of Ishmael. And what if Ishmael says that he's going to take all your inheritance? What about my son Isaac? And Abraham, a good husband that he is, says, whatever you want, wife. And so Sarah sends Hagar out again with her son into the wilderness to die. And Hagar is sitting there in the desert, puts her son over underneath a bush. She's over here. She can't look at her son. They haven't had any water for days. And she says, I'm going to die. My son's going to die, and I don't want to see him die from her thirst. I'm just going to sit here and cry. In Genesis 21, God hears the boy crying, Ishmael the one who's not of the promise. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up, take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. Boom, he provides miraculously a well of water right there. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Ishmael then grows up and becomes a great nation. God saw this woman who was not of the chosen people, who was kicked out by her masters, left to die, and says, I see you, I know you, and I'm going to provide for you, even though I don't have to, but I'm going to do it. We have a God who is powerful. We have a God who is able to do above and beyond anything we could ever imagine. And we have a God who sees everything that's going on and says, I want to help. I want to step into your brokenness and chaos when you think that there's nothing that can be done. When you're hopeless, God says, I am here. I see, I know, I have the power to act, and I will. I love Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40, verse 28, do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. There is no part of this land that he cannot step in and act in. Because he is the ruler over all. Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Jeremiah 23, verse 24. Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. This is our God. He is the creator of the universe, the one who is everlasting, the one who is untiring, the one who is all-knowing, the one who is sovereign, all-powerful, all-present. So the question is, why would we turn to anyone or anything else to help us? If we are broken, miserable people, 
who cannot lift a finger to change ourselves and our state, why would we turn to anyone or anything else except the one who we know beyond a shadow of a doubt sees, hears, and can help? We are humans, broken, miserable, and God is standing over there saying, here I am, pick me, do it, I can do it. It's like I go to a, a field one day and I'm going to play a pickup game of football because that's the only game, football I played growing up. I was never on a team, but I was on a pickup game lots of times. It was great because I was not a sports person. And so I would go and say, yeah, I'll play football. And everyone would be like, okay, fine, you stand over there. And the other team was like, that guy, he's not going to do anything. And so for like three plays, no one would guard me. And then I'd go and sack the quarterback. It was awesome. And then they caught on, and I never did anything else. But say I went and played a pickup game of football, and I come to the field, and I see the team that is playing against me, and it's University of Michigan, state champions, okay? I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, what am I going to do? They're going to stomp all over me, and I've got a choice of the team that I will pick to help me beat the University of Michigan. I can pick this elementary football team. They're cute, very cute. I love the cuteness of elementary football, but they're not going to help me beat the University of Michigan. It's not going to happen. So, or I could pick the Kansas City Chiefs, pro football. I would be stupid to pick the elementary football team if I really wanted to win. They're endearing. They're cute, but it would be stupid for me to do it. Too often, we turn to everything else in our life to help us, except for the God who is powerful. We say, you're cute, you're endearing, you make me feel good, you help me. And we pick the losing team. When God is standing there saying, I'm here, I am all-powerful. You see, this powerful God can restore that which is broken. He can. We're in the middle of winter right now. Nice picture here. Looks a little better than the picture that's outside. We're in the winter here. That's why most of you are at home, because we're in the winter. There is death all around us. Everywhere you look outside is death. I love snow. I do. But underneath that snow is death. It's true. Plus, we're in sub-zero temperatures. And sub-zero temperatures bring death. Thank you, cat. Yes. Death all around us. But in a few long months, spring is coming. Spring is coming. Spring is coming. Snow is going to melt. Fresh grass and flowers are going to grow. Trees are going to bud. New life is coming. And how do I know when we're in the midst of snow and everything is shut down that spring is coming? Because it always does. That's how God designed it. He designed creation to mimic what he does. That he is the God who restores. That out of death, he brings life. Every year we see this cycle over and over and over again, slap in our face saying, do you see, this is the God who I am. 
You think everything is hopeless, but this is the God who I am. You think your life is chaotic and death, but this is the God who I am. I am the God who restores. I think about the beginning of time. Before there was time, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. So the earth was formless and is empty. Darkness, chaos, nothingness. And what did God do in that state of chaos and nothingness? God said, let there be light. And there was light. Blasting into that mix of chaos and nothingness, God shines his character. Light, truth, and then he brings order. That's what God does. God is the God who brings order, who brings restoration. I think about Noah and the flood. Chaos, destruction, death, hopelessness because of the sin of humanity, kind of like my life. And then Noah and his family, they walk off the ark after the flood, and God makes a covenant with them. Genesis chapter 9, he makes a covenant with them and says, God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals and all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And that after that, God gives them new laws to order society. He takes chaos and he brings order and he places his rainbow in the sky as a sign of this covenant. An archer's bow drawn and pointing up to heaven and God saying, so will be done to me if ever I do this. This is what God does. He brings order. He brings restoration in the face of chaos. That's why Jesus came to earth. As I said, we are sinners, unable to change ourselves. And Jesus came with the express purpose of dying for our sins. Romans chapter 5, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Jesus' death, by paying the penalty for our sins, restores us back into relationship with God so we can have peace with him. Chaos into order. Paul writes to the Colossians, Colossians 2, 13 to 15. He says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Dean, is this yours or mine? Thank you. Jesus restores, not just all of humanity. He restores humanity. He says, your lives are chaos. I'm bringing you back into restoration with me so you can have order. But he restores all of creation. Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 20. For creation waits in eager anticipation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, 
but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. God says, creation is in chaos because of the sin of humanity, so I am going to restore it and bring order to it. One day when Jesus comes again, that restoration will happen. Our lives will be completely made whole again. We won't be broken anymore. When Jesus says, welcome home, good and faithful servant, enter into your master's rest. Creation will be restored in that day and will live forever on a perfected earth. Oh, what a glorious day will that be. But that's in the future. And I can say that, oh yeah, I know it's going to happen, but those are just words. You all could look at me and say, well, how do you know that's going to happen? How do we know that the brokenness of my life can be restored and made whole through the power of Jesus? How do we know that the brokenness of creation can be restored and made whole through the power of Jesus? Because Jesus rose from the grave. His own life was restored. And if he could lay dead in a grave and say, I want to come back to life again and raise himself up, he can look into the death of our life and say, you come back to life too. Your chaos can be made whole and ordered. You can have peace in the midst of despair. Chains can be broken. The powerful God can restore, and he can do it fully. Fully. Listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus died for the sins of the world. He said, I will become sin. I will become a sinner. I will take all that on myself for all mankind, for all sins, past, present, future. Our redemption is complete. It is fully made. We don't have to work for it. 
We don't have to do any more sacrifices. We don't have to jump through hoops. Jesus said, I did it all. It is fully done. So in the words of Paul in Romans chapter 7, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then my, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Set us free. Jesus breaks the chains. God has the ability to break the chains of sin and death in our life. He is all powerful if we would turn to him. It's not that we say, oh yes, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, but I realize I have to make atonement for all these other sins, and I have to do this to have my sins forgiven, and I have to jump to this hoop to, to free myself from this. Jesus says, it's done. It's done. And Paul can write this from experience to say, I know this is true, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because he was the man who murdered Christians. He made other people's lives miserable in the name of zealousness for God. He said, I am the worst of sinners. And then he turned to Jesus, and his life was miraculously changed. He writes to the Ephesians, reminding them of who they were in their past. And he says, this, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. God is the God who restores. He takes our old sinful flesh and says, this has no power over us anymore. He says it's gone. Instead, he gives us a new attitude, new desires, new way of life defined by him, defined by his goodness. We don't have to continue in that way of the old life, the addictions and the sins, though so often we willingly choose to do it, but it's a choice that we do. It's not because they're forcing us anymore. We are not able to change ourselves. We are powerless, but God says, I can change. I have the power to restore fully. And it's amazing truth, but do we believe it? If we want to be free from the power of sins and addictions in our lives, we have to believe something. The Alcoholics Anonymous, one, one of the tenets that they say is, you, there must be a higher power that you rely on. And there was one guy that said, fine, I don't believe in God. I'm relying on my old shoe. That's my higher power. And he tried to go through Alcoholics Anonymous. But that doesn't cut it. It's not enough to say, there's a higher power in my life that I'm dependent on because a higher power is a cloud. It's a nothingness. It's a vapor that goes away. We must believe God, the one true God, the one who has the power to fully restore us. But what does it mean to believe something? Think about a snowstorm. We know about snowstorms. We just went through one. I stayed inside my house. I know some people who drove through it, but I'm not going to mention names. Think about a snowstorm. <coughs> Excuse me. If a blizzard is going on, and it's a blizzard, like whiteout conditions, there's been a nice layer of ice on the road, and then the blizzard comes and dumps snow on it, 12 inches blowing around, most of us will look out there and we'll say, you know what? 
I'm not going to drive out there because that's not safe. We believe the roads are unsafe, and so we follow our belief and stay home, most of us. Now, if the roads are clear, we'll look at the roads and, hey, yeah, it's fine. We jump in our car and we head to the store because we believe that we will be safe. We believe that our car won't break down. We believe the weather will hold and a snowstorm isn't coming. We believe that we'll be an adequate driver to keep our car on the road. And we believe that the crazy nuts who are driving the other cars will be adequate in their skills and not run us off the road. So we say, hey, we believe all these facts, and so we act on that belief, and we jump in our car, and we drive to the store. Belief is more than just knowing the facts about something and agreeing with those facts. If I said, I believe the roads are safe, and therefore, I'm going to go to the store, and I stay sitting in my chair, and you ask me, well, do you still believe, do you think the roads are safe? Yeah, the roads are safe. Well, are you going to go to the store? Nope. Why not? Until I get in the car and drive to the store, I might say I believe the roads are safe, but I actually don't. It's one thing to say something. It's another thing to actually believe it. And actions prove that. I think about what James writes in James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. Demons, so in this case, belief doesn't necessarily mean that we are a friend of God, that we are saved. Belief means that, yes, we acknowledge a truth and we act according to it. The demons acknowledge the truth about God. They believe in God. They believe in the one true God. They believe that he's all-powerful. He sees everything. He has the ability to change lives. They believe all these things. And they act based upon that belief. They shudder because they know they're doomed to hell. James chapter 2, verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith without action is not true conviction. It is a death, dead faith. We can stand here and say, I believe that God is all-powerful and he's able to restore. But until I place my faith in him and act on that belief and say, I'm going to trust you alone to save me and I'm not going to trust these other things. I'm going to trust you alone to break me free of my sin and addictions and not trust these other things. We can say we believe in God. But that belief, that, that saying it, is worthless. Because we've never actually trusted him. We never said, I'm going to cross the line and put my will in his. Psalm 37 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. Enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. We're called to trust in him and say, You are my delight. True faith includes knowledge, agreement, and trust. If we know God truly, if we agree with God and trust God, our actions then will align with his will. When they don't, it's because we don't know the truth of God, we disagree with God, or we doubt God. But the result is this. If, we do, if our actions do not align with God's will, 
It's because we put our trust in something other than God. Actions, rather than what we claim we believe, can be a better indicator of where our faith rests. So the question is, do we really believe that God is the one whose power can fully restore us? If we think about our lives and the brokenness that is in it, do we believe that God is the one who can fully restore us? What is the sin that we're struggling with? What is the addiction? Because all of us are addicted to everything, something. All of us are addicted to something, as we said. So do we believe that God is the one who has power? Do we believe what the psalmist writes in Psalm 103? To praise the Lord my soul and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Do we believe that God has the power to restore? That's the truth. Do we agree with it? Do we trust God that he can and that he will? If that's the case, our lives better align with it. We, our lives, no matter what we say we believe, I just lost my train of thought. Second week in a row. This is horrible. If we believe that we're powerless to change ourselves and that God is the only one who has the power to change us, we'll pursue a relationship with him. We will. We'll spend time with him through prayer and Bible study every single day because we realize we need him because he's the only one who can change us. If we believe we cannot change ourselves, but God is the only one we can, we'll spend time with his people, fellow followers of Jesus Christ, because we know that that's who God works through to enact change. But if we say that we are too busy to spend time with God and his people, if we tell ourselves that we can just muscle through our problems and our sins, even though we might say that we believe God has the power to change, we might say that we are following him, we actually aren't. We actually don't believe that he has the power to change because we're not pursuing him. Our actions show that. So what do you believe? What do we believe? Do we look at ourselves and say, yes, I'm a sinner, horrible, miserable, and I need help, and God is the only one who can change me? Is that what we believe? And if that's the case, how can other people tell? Do they see us pursuing him? Or do they see us pursuing something else? Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that you are the God who has power to restore. And you looked in our lives and realized that we needed you. And so you sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life, will be given a new life, a new identity, not based on the past and our sin, but based upon you. Thank you that you step into our lives when we have turned to you in faith and said that you will help us and you will strengthen us to break free, free from the chains that hold us down, chains that hold us to the sins and addictions. And thank you that you do broke those chains, that you give us hope, you give us peace, and one day you will fully restore us. We say even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Thanks, Father. Amen.
And if